Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm-hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. From iHeart Podcast, I am Fab Five Freddy, and this is 50 Years of Hip Hop Podcast Series. As rap, music, hip hop culture began to make a louder noise, began to have a more dominant impact, it became clear, and it was clear to a lot of people that really understood how the cultural pieces fall, that where we were as a time, particularly Black Americans, Uh, Coming out of the struggles of the 60s and 70s, uh, it was a culture of, you know, typified by George Jefferson's show, you know, moving on up, putting that three piece suit on and, you know, getting off the corner and being able to get into those executive suites in in a deluxe apartment up in the sky. So that's where a lot of the mindset was, particularly of a lot of people that were controlling things or the few black executives that had some clout that were running things at radio. Even doing things like, you know, Don Cornelius hosting Soul Train. A lot of these cats were not checking for this hip hop, rap, energy, attitude, swagger, all of that. They were like, what are you doing? I'm not down with that energy at all. And that was a problem. And that was a big barrier that this rap music thing had to overcome. You had to be real clever about doing it. And uh, once again, Christmas Rapping was one of those records that was able to get into the door. And once we got got into the door, a lot of people knew, let's hold that door open and let the rest of the homies on in. So the resistance was real and once again, cultural. Even I remember when Curtis Blow 
was on Soul Train, Don Cornelius wasn't totally cool, kind of dismissive. Like, this is a passing fad, I'm sure, you know, was the attitude that many had. I mean, not just black, white, everybody. They were up against and in resistance to the force, the attitude, once again, the swagger, everything that hip hop is. It was a problem. Russell Simmons, record executive and entrepreneur. I used to promote records in 1979. I was a record promoter. When Christmas rapping came out, the only black guy that really liked me was the boss, Bob, Bill Haywood. He died. But this liked me. He would go to club hopping with He would see me take him from the South Bronx to Harlem, to Midtown. The differences were profound in the club. I'd just be today, love different kind of people. To Midtown, we go to Bedleys and Leviticus and Pegasus and Justine's and all these bougie clubs where he felt like his suit fit, right? And then we go downtown to the punk rock club, to the Peppermint Lounge, to the Mud Club, and to the World. And then we would go to the gay club. We would go, which is where the records had to play or they wouldn't play on the radio. If you don't play in the gay club, Frankie Crockett, not So we had to play in the garage, in the loft, and we had to play in Better Days. We had to play in the gallery. Those famous DJs. Influence radio because they were gay club, and that's all we had was gay disco on the radio. So Frankie Crocker one night on Christmas Eve heard, and I was there, Christmas rapping in the Paradise Garage. Next morning on Christmas morning, he played it one time. Never played it again until a year later. But that's how it got played. Larry Levan played, so you know, and the gay club was very exclusive. Can't get in there from straight. But we as Harlem. We figured out a way. We smoked dust to go to gay club because that's where, and we had aspirations to be in music. And, you know, we would go check out, you know, the lesbian. But we really, that was really the place to go if you wanted to play music. Because that was what Judy Weinstein said. Let me make the final point. Black music made easy for white people to dance to. That's what they called disco. And she was the boss. She had disco DJs all over the country. And that chart, the disco chart, was more important to black radio in New York. There was no funk on that chart. So that chart was WBLS and WKTU and the radio stations that played what we called black music. But it was never black music. It was black music made simple for white people to dance to. And during the same time that funk was everywhere else, we were locked out of the funk and created our own. Russell's reminded me, man, of just how many incredible clubs we had in New York City up until not that long ago, y'all. It really makes me think, man. I mean, there were you can go to a different club every night, different flavor, different kind of music, you know, mostly on the downtown scene. But there were so many places to go and party in New York. Paradise Garage, I was up in there, too. It was a gay club, but on Friday, it was very mixed. And some of the hot chicks used to go through there. And that sound system Larry LeVan had in the garage was something to behold. Designed by the legendary audio designer, rest in peace, Richard Long. But I just also want to add, it was when Rudy Giuliani was mayor. Yeah, that guy that he put in all these laws in effect that totally devastated the New York club scene. Like he enacted these cabaret laws and everything that took a lot of the fun out of New York City and really was a big part in just a lot of people that had clubs. They just couldn't do it because it took lots of money to get these licenses and stuff. But that's really fascinating to, to just remember what it used to be 
as Russell lays it down. Curtis Blow's Christmas Rapping, which was released back in 1979. This was the first Christmas rap record, of course. You know, very few rap records at the time, but this was the first one all about Christmas, a real clever move. And it was also the first rap record on a major record label. This was released on Mercury Records. And this thing was the first record to get significant radio play across the board. And of course, largely behind this was Russell Simmons, Curtis Blow's manager at the time. Curtis Blow, legendary rapper and hip hop's first rap superstar. I remember it was very, very difficult back in the days when radio would not play rap music. And that was a big problem for many of the artists. Christmas rapping was so instrumental in the success to hip hop because it was a first holiday classic song it plays every year. And it was by design. I remember my producers coming to me and saying that, look, it's coming up. Uh, we are in studio in August and uh, Rappers of Light was the number one thing all over the nation right then. And so we were thinking, well, how can we capitalize on this rap on record? And so we came up with the idea of doing a Christmas rap, a holiday rap song that would play every year during Christmas time. So that was the greatest concept. <laughs> and of course, you know, the, uh, spiritually, Christmas is the birthday of Christ. So, you know, we can't lose uh, doing a song about Jesus's birthday. <laughs> so it has the longevity because it plays every year. And my hat goes out to all of the radio stations around the nation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for playing that song like Nat King Cole. Man, 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 you made my legacy. You made my career. And not only me, but my family and all of my fans, all, I'll say friends, my, I don't have fans anymore. I only have friends. <laughs> and so we thank you because you made it happen. And it was so important because I'll tell you, when the song came out, it was a monster hit on the radio. And not only in the, on the radio, but in the clubs. And I'll tell you why. It was so hot because it played not only on during Christmas. The song came out December 19th in 1979 but it played all the way through to the summer of 1980 ed lover rapper actor radio personality and former mtv vj oh god the radio station was playing whatever whatever was popular in disco whatever whatever was popular at the time whether whatever kind of r&b was popular we used to listen to frankie crocker uh one of the greatest New York pers air personalities on WBLS and then Disco 92 came along and they played a whole lot of disco. That was WKTU. So whatever was popular except hip hop, they played it. Whether it was a fatback band, a confunction, or mini Ripperton, or or Earth One and Fire, or Stevie Wonder, or Michael Jackson and the Jackson Five, all of that stuff got played on the radio. All the time you got to hear anything remotely considered hip-hop was on those tapes and 
you know, the breakout, Baron in the breakout four and the, in the Cold Crush Brothers and the Fantastic Romantic Five. You got to hear that stuff that was going on in, in, in the mid to late 70s. You got to hear that. But before that, it was all it was all disco. Hang up the big hats of KDAY Santa Monica. And for all of Los Angeles, we are the Hit Breakers. Well, that was a little taste of uh, KDAY 1580 on the AM dial in the Los Angeles area. Yes, K-Day was the first radio station in the country 24 hours to play hip hop. You feel me? And it was so important. This is back in the 80s, the early 80s on K-Day was the move. And Greg Mack was the genius behind it all. Brave guy that stepped out there, got this station, 1580 on the AM dial. All you West Coast people, L.A., et cetera, y'all going to know what I'm talking about. And that was just so impactful. They also had these mix masters, right? On the weekends, these two DJs would put these incredible mixes together. Two of those mix masters was DJ Yella and Dr. Dre. Yes, Dr. Dre. But at this time, they was in the world-class wrecking crew. N.W.A. and all that good hip-hop energy hadn't happened yet. We just want to make sure everybody knows this is where it begins on the 24-hour tip. Doc Winter, iHeart Media President of Hip-Hop and R&B Programming and Program Director at Real 92.3 in L.A. So l- let's say I think hip-hop, the record, the first record were like in 82. So King Tim the Third, and then later on was Rapper's Delight. Those records were relegated to basically you play them in the house. Nobody was playing them on the radio. I get to St. Louis in 89 and 90, and I can't remember what year Hot 97 started playing it, but I remember that towards like maybe 92, 93, it was relegated to 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. And I I was the Quiet Storm host, so I came on at 9 o'clock. So the guy that had that six to nine shift, his name was Kevy Kev, by the way, still with his good brother. That was the guy that played rap. And that was the only time you could hear it on the radio. Never heard it in morning drive. Never heard it. <laughs> it was 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. was when the rap records came on. And he was uh, he was other than the quiet storm guy, the most popular DJ on the station because he played the music that the audience was just so excited to hear and and what was really good for me and not really realizing this until later on in life i'd grown up in new york city so i had you know i grew up on a new york palette of music and and taste and whatnot and then i went to connecticut you know northern and then i go to the midwest and i'm in the midwest and so now because i'm in the midwest i'm not only getting the new york music i'm also getting the west coast music I'm also probably more of the West Coast music now. So, you know, as time goes on, I'm beginning to get Ice Cube, Dr. Trey, and and, uh, Tupac. So I'm getting this education where it was quite possible that if I was in New York at the time, I was probably only going to get the New York sound. If I was in L.A., I was only going to get the L.A. sound. So I I got a nice palette of music. And so, you know, those records were coming through, man. And it was like, man, we we were afraid in our mind, if, if those records came on before six or after uh, nine, 
it it was going to hurt us from a ratings perspective or from an advertiser's perspective. And so then we began to experiment playing them a little more earlier on the weekends. Like, you know, it may come on at two o'clock on, on a Saturday or so, on a Saturday, not on a Sunday. Because that was, you know, that was the devil's music. DJ Envy, radio personality and host of The Breakfast Club. At that time, it was very local. And it was just growing outside of New York. You got to remember back then, it wasn't too many people playing hip hop. So Hot 97 and, you know, when WBLS played the little, you know, hours here and hours there, Hot 97 gave dedicated radio station to hip hop and R&B, which was really amazing. It gave a bunch of artists and it gave a bunch of people from our community a chance to pay their bills, a chance to go on tour, a chance to be heard. And if it wasn't for that station and taking the chance, I, I don't know where hip hop will be right now. Yeah, you know, it was just a part of the game at that time as rap was growing, coming up, having more impact, uh, convincing people like, no, this is not a trend. We're not going nowhere. We're going to be here for a while. And um, a lot of people in charge, program directors at various radio stations, uh, record execs, you know, those those few that had those positions, particularly on the black side, were just not checking for it. It was shocking to them. It was just not what they were. You know, if you think of R&B and cast wearing slick suits and doing really fly with I still love all of this but this was diametrically opposed and I mean absolutely different in every sense of the word and you folks that you know from the hood and know what I'm talking about when you can remember like you saw that that whole rap attitude you know like when you standing there in a b-boy stance you know you know with your arms folded with a with an ice grill on your face. <laughs> a lot of it was just posing, but it was shocking to the cats that were running the game. And so they were resistant. So these were major battles, barriers that had to be broken down, and they did. Russell Simmons definitely played a key part in that. He understood this struggle as uh, one of the few young black execs that really came out of the scene at that time. And these were the battles that were fought. And like I said, 50 years in the game, baby, these battles were won. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. 
every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Daddy O, rapper, producer, deep thinker, and founding member of classic Brooklyn rap group Stetsasonic. The first time we ever got radio play was a guy. There was a there was a station in New York called WKTU that used to play mostly like dance metal. And it was a guy named Paco on KTU that played King Tim the Third, which was a fatback band record that had a rap in. And it was KTU that played Rapper's Delight first. I'm talking about in the daytime. I'm not talking about Awesome 2 or Mr. Magic or any of them, you know, African Islam in them. But on the daytime, you know. And I don't know what happened to Paco. And, you know, I, he stayed on the radio, but I can imagine Paco got yelled at. I really can see him getting yelled at for play. What are you doing? You know, what are you playing this rap? Like, you know what I mean? Like, 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 I don't know if they thought it was like street music or it was going to bring bad juju. I don't know what they thought, but it, it wasn't to their liking. And the other thing I think is, and this probably is not a bad thing on it, but we didn't really know how to make records in the beginning. So our records was like 13 minutes long. You know what I'm saying? Like... I'll be brutal. When we got signed, you know, we got our deal through a contest, right? We won a contest and we got our, our, our record deal. But when we we had a demo and the name of that demo was Stetsasani. That was the name of the demo. No hook. When Tommy Silverman heard the record or the demo or whatever, he said, this is good. I like what y'all are doing. Where's the hook? And I said, what are you talking? Like a chorus? Like something that repeats? And he said, yeah, hmm, ain't no hook, like ain't no hook in, in none of these, ain't no hook in the message. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, well, the message kind of had a hook, but the, the rest of the records didn't really have no hook. And he said, that thing that you say at the end, daddy, yo, if you can't say it all, just say stat, that would be a nice hook. 
And so we went and re-recorded it and the record became Just Say Step, which was our first single. You know what I mean? But the bottom line is that I say this all the time. In the beginning, none of us knew what we was doing. You listen to the first Sugar Hill Gang album, they singing on half of it and rapping on half of it. So we didn't know what to do yet. I always give Russell and running them the credit, Larry Smith, God bless the dead. But when Run came out with a full rap out, we said, holy crap, we could do a rap album. A lot of younger people, they might not realize or might not even bring to the information that back in the days, hip hop wasn't as it was. Everything is on demand now. So, you know, if the Funkmaster Flex debuts a song on Hot 97 and miss it, you could just go to YouTube or you could just go to wherever five minutes later and hear it. But back in those days, man, I remember sitting by the radio just waiting to hear certain songs like Dana Dang Nightmares. That song just really blew my mind because it was such a conceptual thing and, you know, it was on the almost like the hip-hop version of Thriller, you know, he's Nightmares and um, of course Slick Rick and Dougie Fresh the show. I remember uh, Gucci Man Gucci Man like um, Roxanne, Roxanne all of those records I was, even though I was a little kid, I, I knew it was a difference between what they was doing and what New Edition was doing and what a lot of other people was doing. I, I, I knew it was I knew it was rap music. I knew, I knew it was a difference. But back in those days, New York radio, it wasn't segregated like how it is now. So you had uh, Kiss FM, WBLS. Those are the two main stations. And they would play everything. They would play Madonna. They would play Luther Vandross. They would play New Edition. They would play Michael Jackson. They would play Patti LaBelle. But they would also play hip-hop. But hip-hop would only be played certain times of the day, believe it or not. You know, now you turn on the radio and you want to hear a rap song immediately, damn near. But back in those days, early 80s, you would only hear it like certain times of the day. So I used to just stay by the radio and I had my, my uh, Teeny K or Maxell cassette tapes and I had it there and I was just wanted to be so on point like I, I discovered that um when you would want to record something off the radio instead of having to run and plus playing record at the same time our most boom box was set up you hit the pause button then you hit play and record so when your song came on that you wanted all you got to do is press pause and then you start recording and later, I'm not saying I invented the term, but later, you know, some people would call those pause tapes. You know, I'm, I'm definitely not taking credit for none of that. But, you know, I just did it. You think about all the way back to like 82, 83. It was just coming on the radio, even though it was out in the street before that. It wasn't really getting like super crazy radio play in like the late 70s and maybe like super super early 80s and I, I was a, I was a little too young so I, I, don't, I don't remember if, if it did but 
from what I understand, it wasn't really getting that much play like in the late 70s and the dawn of the 80s. But like 83, when like Run DMC started breaking and Houdini and all of those guys started making noise and Curtis Blow, we'd just be hearing all of these new songs. You know, like damn near like every week or every other week, a, a, a new song was coming out, Song Pepper. And, you know, you just sit by the radio just so you can just feel the energy. Yeah, and so basically, keep in mind, in this 50th year of rap music and hip-hop culture just dominating the whole global music space, back at this time, if you didn't have a cassette, a homie that knew, was able to tell a friend to tell a friend what was really going on, you really didn't hear any rap music on the radio. It was a cassette, you know what I'm saying? Or maybe you was lucky enough to be on the block where those DJs were actually doing that thing. You know what I mean? You know, as we talked about in previous episodes, banging into the base of the streetlight, plugging in them wires to the right wires so you don't get electrocuted, plugging in that sound system, them amps, them speakers, and let the music play. That's how it went down, for sure. Ed Lover. Because we were so considered mainstream at that time that... If you did a record like, you know, the first time I got Protect Your Neck and Met The Man, it wasn't on loud. It was on Wu-Tang Records and it was on a tape. So we we wasn't not. We ain't going to play that. We weren't playing that. That was two. That was like a year before they even signed to loud. Uh, they got at me at, a, at the beach at Jones Beach at the Greek Greek picnic at Jones Beach and gave it to me. Gave it to me on on tape, you know. But so they didn't really have no real major label backing them, so they wasn't going to get that. So that's where the stretching Bobitos came in, and Awesome Tools came in, and even the Supreme Team. You know, before that, they were there as the outlet for these underground artists that was coming up that didn't have that financial backing from a major label. Curtis Blow. I was on a major label. I was guaranteed radio play. As a matter of fact, I started making these radio records and got criticized for it. But that's okay because I did a sacrificial move, the sacrifice of making the kind of music that was radio friendly was so very important to spreading, of course, this culture around the country. That was uh, by design. It was a sacrifice. This is what I'm saying. And and there's two parts to that. Number one was I met uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson in 1980. He came up to me, pulled me to the side and said, listen, Curtis, this thing hip hop, this thing rap is incredible. You guys, you and your you and your fellas are the new icons of the community. And. I'm going to give you a message. I want you to take back to your fellas and you tell them, I said that this is an incredible, this culture of hip hop. But if you guys want it to really be successful and spread around the world, you have to keep it clean and then they will play it. They will make it successful. All right. So I went back to Grandmaster Flash and the Sugar Hill Gang. We were doing our first national interview on Radio Scope. 
So I went to them before the interview and I told them what uh, Jesse Jackson had said, the Rev had said, and they all agree. All right. All right. Right then and there, we started what we call the code of ethics, not cursing on our songs, not using profanity and not being disrespectful, just keeping it clean so we could spread it around the country. Curtis Blow talking about his sacrifices were also strategic chess moves that broke down the barriers of resistance to the music, to the culture. I'm talking about hip hop. Ed Lover. Everybody had to make a clean version, like a squeaky clean version. We played clean version. No spin back. Spin back came later. All that. No, you went into the studio after you made your dirty version. And you made a completely clean version for the radio. It was none of that spin back. It wasn't none of that boing. It wasn't none of that none of that woo-woo, none of that. You made a completely clean version. What Snoop and them did, when he did the Doggy Style album, the stuff we played was completely clean. It wasn't no beep outs. It wasn't no backwards spins. It wasn't nothing. Even sometimes having to absolutely change the lyrics so that it could be clean. There was no even a reference towards anything. The word n- was, you didn't hear n- on, on the radio. You just, you couldn't hear all the ass, you know? That's why it was always with Biggie, when we played Juicy, when we first started playing Juicy, it was always, if you don't know, now you know, you know? You didn't say n- they didn't beep out, they didn't spin backwards, no. The FCC wasn't having that. So, you know, they, everybody had gone through what they was going to go through. You know, Luke and them had their thing with the Supreme Court and all of that. I remember we used to have to play the completely clean versions of, of their video. When they would re-edit the video for Yo! TV Raps, you know? We couldn't play. We didn't play straight out of Compton on Yo! TV Raps. We couldn't play that video because of the imagery and all of that other stuff. No, nah, we couldn't play that. Couldn't play it. There was a completely clean version of that song, too. So, you know, you had to have what was palatable to the public, what parents would not complain about, and what passed FCC regulations without you getting a fine. And that was a completely clean version. Everybody did it. Ask Dre, ask Puff, ask Russell. Everybody was like, give me the clean version so I can service rate. Completely clean. Without all that, what they do now. You know, that stuff didn't exist. It was clean, clean. Super clean. Yes, Ed, you took me back like an eight track right there, man. That's right. Another strategic move in getting this culture to where it is. Clean versions of all the records. Hey, man, listen, it was it was a necessary thing to do. But I'm sure for Ed, even particular, like being a guy that was on the radio, you really knew we could only play the clean version, no matter how dope it was. But as uh, soon as you left the radio, you knew what was being played. Right, y'all? Frankie Crocker, Frankie Hollywood Crocker, huge influence on me and my musical taste. And if you came up in New York, 70s into the 80s, from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m., like he used to say, if Frankie Crocker isn't on your radio, your radio isn't really on. Frankie took that whole black radio jock aesthetic, cleaned it up, polished, poised, enunciated, but he had so much flavor was so cool. And Frankie specifically wanted to elevate black radio from where it had been, once again, in New York, 
the main black radio station for years had been 1600 on the AM dial. I was WWRL. Frankie Crocker brought it to FM. You know, it was originally WLIB-FM. Then they switched it up. They let Frankie have total control. So Frankie was not just the main DJ that put together all the other DJs on WBLS. He was also the program director. Frankie had his ear attuned to the mobile DJs, the disco DJs that preceded hip-hop. And when he was at those parties and he saw the crowd go crazy to records he didn't hear about, he went to the DJ, got the name of that song, went and bought that record and was playing it on WBLS within days. And he broke so many records that later became what we know of as disco. Frankie was a true pioneer with incredible music taste, but his taste was broad. If the records were dope, Frankie played it. And so he broke out of just a strict, you know, black music, R&B, soul, funk thing. And he would play something by the Rolling Stones if it was dope. Something by David Bowie if it was dope. When Frankie played those artists, he got a lot of black folks that really weren't exposed to that kind of music open and then into them. So Frankie was a true music leader, tastemaker. But once again, like a lot of older folks or folks from the previous generation of smooth R&B and soul and funk and all those things, Frankie wasn't really checking for hip hop. This was a musical revolution going on. And so he was rather resistant to what was coming. Eventually, Frankie had to give in and let it go because it was Frankie that okayed bringing Mr. Magic who was on WHBI, where the Supreme Team, Jess Alada, Superstar, C. Divine, the Mastermind, were coming on in the middle of the week at super-duper late hours. You had to have your cassette on pause, ready to record if you wanted to get any kind of real hip-hop. But Frankie saw what was going on. He saw the numbers. He saw the game changes. So he brought Mr. Magic over because Frankie probably played a handful of rap records, Sugar Hill Gang, Rapper's Delight or whatever, but it wasn't his thing. So it was changing of the guard. But Frankie Crocker, huge influence um, style-wise, music-wise for so many reasons. Go on YouTube and just Google up Frankie Crocker. You can find some pieces of him in action and get a taste of that Frankie Crocker flavor. Doc Winter. As I got a little older, I mean, in my, my room, and as I got a little older and I started driving to school or going, getting in the car with my brother or my friends, they would always have BLS on. And man, I, like, I just, I was immediately entranced by Frankie Crocker. Like, I had never heard a brother speak so smoothly, speak so well, uh, be so articulate and cool and just like, man, this dude is this dude is the man, you know? And obviously you can all imagine what it was like for me years later to actually meet him. It was, it was just surreal. By the time I had left for college, um, you know, I was a huge, I've become a huge R&B fan. I, I was able to distinguish the fact that uh, WBLS was the heritage station in New York City. When Frankie Crocker was on the radio, you were loyal. Like, you just didn't turn the dial because it was blasphemy. And then Kiss came on. And then, you know, sometimes Frankie Crocker would, you know, he might just decide he wanted to play an hour of jazz. And you'd be like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and then you might sneak over and listen to Kiss maybe playing New Edition or something. You're like, whoa. And 
that was like kind of like my first lesson before I became a program director or even involved in radio about the power of, you know, playing the hits. Ed Lover. His voice, um, his delivery, the fact that Frankie wasn't being programmed at that time either. Frankie played whatever Frankie wanted to play. And that was the cool thing about it. Like, you listen to Frankie, you wasn't going to get the same music you got yesterday. It might be a standout record that he was really into that he would play. I found out later on he was taking a little money too. But Frankie played what Frankie wanted to play, which made Frankie so dope. He was the gold standard, definitely, of radio. He was a cool dude of radio. He missed the boat on hip-hop too, but can't be mad at him because he was already into doing his own thing, you know? But definitely one of the dudes that I thought was super dope was Frankie Croc, sure. Daddy-O. Tyrone Williams, Fly Tide, tells me the story of how Frankie Crocker and a few of them other DJs actually got together and started talking to other DJs and saying, yo, if y'all stop playing hip hop, we'll give you more salary and all of that kind of stuff. Like it just it was I don't know. I, I think we were the same threat that we were to everybody else. You know what I mean? Like there was a lot of people that saw their ending and our beginning. On the next episode of 50 Years of Hip Hop podcast series, we'll continue with All the Hits and No Rap, Part 2, the imminent shift that helped change the landscape of radio, top to bottom, end to end. This episode has been executive produced by Dolly S. Bishop, hosted and produced by your boy, Fab Five Freddy, produced by Aaron A. King Howard, Edit, mix, sound by Dwayne Crawford. Music scoring by Trey Jones. Talent booking by Nicole Spence. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Kerry Hilson, Adonis. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a mm -hmm. hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money 
on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.